The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Laura Vandenberg. She is Associate Dean for Undergraduate Academic Affairs within the School of Public Health and Health Sciences. And she's a professor in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Dr. Vandenberg's research has largely focused on endocrine disruptors, those ubiquitous chemicals found in plastics and flame retardants, and how exposures to even very low doses during critical windows of development can lead to diseases later in life, such as cancer, obesity, and infertility. However, I wanted to interview her today because of the critical paper she co-authored titled The Science of Spin, Targeted Strategies to Manufacture Doubt with Detrimental Effects on Environmental and Public Health. It was published in Environmental Health in March of 2021. I think it's one of the most important papers of the year and deserves wide dissemination. Welcome, Dr. Vandenberg. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. I am curious to know how you, as a bench researcher, became interested in the topic of spin. It's a great question, and there's really two answers. One is from my job as a professor teaching classes for the past 10 years with students who were largely unaware of the tactics that have been used by industry to lie to people about products that really can harm health. And the tobacco industry is really the king of this. And I think everyone that's college-aged has grown up in a world where tobacco is an acknowledged harm, where their entire lives they've gotten the message that smoking kills and that they shouldn't do it. And yet they're still unaware of the really impressive tactics that the tobacco industry used for years and continues to use to manipulate public knowledge. And as I was teaching other examples like the coal industry, the asbestos industry, the different organizations that have been involved in polluting communities with lead, they were really shocked to see the kinds of tactics that these industries can use and get away with. The other reason why I got pulled into this world is that, as you mentioned, I study endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And these are chemicals commonly found in everyday items, household items, personal care products. And I have also seen in my own interactions at scientific conferences, presenting to legislators, talking to average people about the work that I do, how much they have already been fed disinformation about either specific chemicals or endocrine disruptors more generally. And combating that disinformation is really a tall task and requires understanding the tactics that are used by industries so that we can help to educate people so that they can make choices that are better for their health. I am so interested in this as well because through the food lens, I have seen children in particular manipulated by messages from the fast food industry, for example, 
soft drinks are another great example, how they are sold products that are not good for them or the planet. And so you and I share this interest in manipulation, and you did something quite unique with this paper. You looked at what kinds of tactics are used to manufacture doubt. And I wanted you to define the manufacturing of doubt. What is that and why is that so important? That's a great place to start. Manufactured doubt, we define that as actions that were taken to deliberately alter or misrepresent knowable facts. And it's done usually to promote an agenda that would benefit an industry or a corporation or a group of individuals. And the term manufactured doubt it dates back to the tobacco industry. When the tobacco industry was sued by state's attorneys general for the damage that had been done to public health, and really because the tobacco industry had misrepresented knowledge about the harm that could come from tobacco, when documents were turned over during the legal discovery process, there's a very famous document that was turned over that had been written by a tobacco industry executive. And it said, doubt is our product. And that's a quote that on its own is really shocking to have the head of a company not saying tobacco is our product or cigarettes are our product or this specific kind of cigarette is our product. To instead suggest that doubt is the product really does show you that a lot of effort and energy went into creating these tactics, these actions that could be used to deliberately alter and misrepresent knowable facts. So I'm thinking of the precautionary principle, which says that if there's a little bit of question about the safety of a product, wouldn't we be wiser to err on the side of safety? Why are we less likely to veer towards, let's take the precautionary approach and say, well, you know, maybe it doesn't hurt, so I'm going to keep on doing it? Well, I think... We should honestly take a lot of our lessons from some of the early voices in how to connect the dots between environmental factors and building arguments that an environmental factor could cause harm. And the person I'm thinking of is Sir Bradford Hill. And Bradford Hill was a scholar and he put together arguments that could be used when you're looking at human populations to show that X causes Y. And the reason why we need to do that is I study animals in a lab. So I can have a group of animals that are exposed to some environmental pollutant, and I have a group of animals that are not exposed. So I can compare those two groups, and I've controlled everything about that experiment. So if I see a difference between those two groups, I can attribute that difference to the thing that I did to them, the exposure. That's very rare in environmental studies of humans. Right? It's not like we can go find a group of people and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you smoke. And we're going to just see what happens 50 years from now if I make you smoke. And we'll go to another group of people and we'll say, you're not allowed to smoke. And in fact, you're not allowed anywhere near those other people who are smoking because you're my control group and I have to keep you as clean as possible. So you can imagine the difficulty in running an experiment like that in humans. There's all kinds of ethical problems. There's all kinds of control problems. You would have the potential to accidentally put someone in the wrong group because of something you can't control as a scientist. 
So Bradford Hill proposed ways to build a case that something that you could not control could actually still be shown to cause an effect. But what Bradford Hill points out is that you're never going to have all of the information. You're never going to know everything about how one thing caused a disease because you didn't control the exposure. So what he says about precaution is that when you're looking at the kind of data that we collect from human populations, you have to not just look at the strength of the evidence, but also what's the level of harm that comes if you ignore data? If you aren't precautionary enough, what's the level of harm? And Bradford Hill points out that if we're talking about a drug that would be administered to pregnant women that could cause fetal deaths or serious birth defects, you don't need a lot of evidence because the level of harm that could come would be so very high that you should act on whatever information you have. But Bradford Hill points out that if you're trying to change the diet of people based on very little evidence, and people really, really, really like that diet, they like eating gummy bears or they like eating whatever the thing is that you're trying to restrict, that you're going to have a harder time convincing them with a very little amount of evidence. And so he makes this point, and I think that this is relevant to the problem here, that when we're talking about foods that children really like, or we're talking about a behavior that people really like, and it's gross to think about it, but people really do like to smoke some of why they do it, then their expectation is that if I like doing this activity, if I like eating this food, you better have a huge amount of evidence to change my mind. And you better be very certain about that evidence. I had thought about that actually looking at the particular industries that you have targeted for investigation. So you looked at the tobacco industry, you looked at coal, and we don't have many alternatives to fossil fuels at this point. You looked at sugar, and you looked at manufacturers of the pesticide atrazine, as well as the Marshall Institute, which is an institute focused on climate change research. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, I don't want to give up sugar unless the evidence is really strong. And what are farmers told? We're told that we have to use these pesticides in order to feed the world or to have fruits and vegetables or to be profitable. So choosing the no answer is difficult. That's exactly right. And it's scary. And it feels, in many cases, very unknown. And the sugar industry, which I think is right in your wheelhouse and thinking about nutrition, it's such an interesting case study because the sugar industry is an example where the link between sugar and cardiovascular disease, the evidence could be interpreted in other ways when you're looking at human populations. And there are other culprits that could be blamed. And I think, again, this also highlights why it's easy to create distrust between the public and expert scientists, because nutrition is one of those areas where people are actually really aware of what medical or scientific guidelines are suggesting, right? Eat butter, don't eat butter. Eggs are good for you, no eggs aren't good for you. Eat sugar, no eat these sugar substitutes. And, you know, in my lifetime, I've seen this flip-flop, 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 and it makes people distrust science when, in fact, what they've actually been fed all along, fed, pun intended, is messaging that's coming from an industry that's almost disguised as science. 
the sugar industry is a very powerful industry and was able to blame the links between sugar and cardiovascular disease on a high-fat diet. Well, you did something that's really unique in that you looked at all of the tactics that this handful of industries and organizations use to manufacture doubt and manipulate the way we think about their products to increase sales. And you recognized 28 unique tactics, and you narrowed that down to five that were especially prominent. And as I'm going through your list, and I'm going to make a link to this paper available to our listeners in the show notes, but as I went down the strategies, I could see myself in, say, academic meetings. I could see myself at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Association Expo, and I could see these industries represented and using these tactics. So would you like to identify a few of those strategies that you found to be particularly common among all of those industries? Sure. So one is to attack the studies that have been done that suggest that your product causes harm. An example of this would be when some of the earliest studies of human cohorts were done, suggesting that smoking caused lung cancer, or smoking was at least associated with lung cancer. The tactic that the tobacco industry would use would be to say, oh, but those are human cohort studies. So you didn't get to assign people as smokers or non-smokers, which means that it's an uncontrolled study. It should be tossed in the garbage can. And the reason why that tactic works is that every study has a flaw with it. There is no perfect scientific study. And so if you can attack study design, if you can convince people who are not in the field, who are not expert scientists, that the study is flawed, then they can discard it. Mm. Another very common tactic is to gain support from individuals that are considered reputable to an audience. We saw this again with the tobacco industry where they would say four out of five doctors prefer to smoke this brand of cigarettes or nine out of ten judges prefer to smoke this kind of cigarette, which is sort of a funny thing to think that it matters what the legal profession thinks about smoking cigarettes, but to try to get reputable individuals. In the chemical that I study, which is not part of this paper, but I've studied the chemical BPA for more than 15 years now, And we saw this tactic being used by that industry in documents that were discovered by investigative journalists where the industry was talking about wanting to hire a celebrity to talk about the valuableness of BPA and consumer products. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be a reputable individual in the field. It just needs to be someone that the public would consider trusting. Dr. Vandenberg, let me take one break because we are halfway through. I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined by Dr. Laura Vandenberg. She is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and we are talking about her excellent study titled The Science of Spin, Targeted Strategies to Manufacture Doubt with Detrimental Effects on Environmental and Public Health. I want to just jump on to that second strategy with regard to gaining support from reputable individuals because registered dietitians are considered trusted, reputable individuals when it comes to helping people choose diets that will help prevent chronic disease. 
And the industry knows that. And so if you were to go to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual conference and see who is in the Expo Center, you will see lots of representatives from industry, as well as agrochemical businesses, Dow Chemical, Monsanto, that's now Bayer, telling us how important it is that the work that they do is helping to feed the world. There is not a dietitian on earth that is not caring about making sure people are well-fed. So their techniques to rope us in and to be perpetrators of their disinformation is really quite alarming to me. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I have seen that, unfortunately, with some of the chemicals that I've studied, I've been contacted by nutritionists or registered dietitians that work for some of the chemical companies or industries where I've studied the chemicals. And oftentimes the contact that I get from them frames my work as if it is intended to cause harm. So the accusations, which is a tactic, the the use of ad hominem, to suggest that I want babies to starve, which there aren't a lot of scientists in my field either that don't care deeply about the health of people and about the ability of all people to access healthy, nutritious, affordable food. So it's a very tough thing to have those kinds of accusations lobbed at you because when you take them at face value, you think, what about my message was misheard that this person is interpreting my care about chemical contaminants and food to mean that I think that people shouldn't have access to food. But that's also part of the tactics that industries can use is to make scientists like me really question our message and question whether we should even be speaking out against chemicals if it might lead to some other inequity. But then the part that's often not talked about is that there's inherent inequity in who eats processed food. And there's inherent inequity in people's exposures to environmental pollutants, including pollutants that come from the agrochemical business. So by framing work to protect people from these chemicals as somehow enhancing disparities is such a manipulation, and yet it works because it puts people on their back foot. Yeah. I just have to bring up the issue of when universities, and this is one of the strategies, is where you'll find, see, a university researcher who might be a ghostwriter or they'll write a report. But when those departments are dependent upon research dollars from those industries, those researchers often feel muzzled to speak the truth because maybe they've had their hands slapped for for raising doubt about the messages that they're being fed by industry. Yeah, I think as academics, We need to constantly be checking ourselves for our own conflicts of interest and biases, and those can come from all directions. But I think that the part that's often not able to be disclosed is the fact that we can get pressure from forces within the university's walls that suggest that certain direction of research is not such a great idea because it might challenge a donor or it might challenge an industry that's heavily supported some other group on campus. Mm. And in environmental health, this is particularly challenging because oftentimes researchers in my discipline really are focused on identifying problems and industry is not normally giving us money to identify problems. They're giving us money to not identify problems. 
which means that the researchers who are doing this work are often doing it with great risk to their own research programs, the financial viability of their own research programs. And you can imagine that there can be a lot of pressure put on faculty who depend on grants or or funding from external sources outside of the university that you might end up doing research that's favorable to industry because it's a way to not only pay yourself, but to pay the people in your research group who you really care about. So it definitely sets up some serious issues that can compound themselves within the university setting. Right. Well, getting back to your list of strategies, the third one that seemed to be ubiquitous among all of the manufacturers was misrepresentation of data where specific studies are cherry-picked to prove their point or dilute the work of somebody who is in opposition. Do you want to say anything about that or give an example? Yes, this can happen when there's five or six studies and four of them point towards harm and maybe one doesn't point towards harm. And there's there can be very real reasons for why that might happen, but it also could be poor study design on one side of that equation. And the industry, when they're manipulating information and manufacturing doubt, they're very good at highlighting information that supports their cause and really trashing the studies that call in, into question the harm of their product. And that leads us to the fourth strategy that you've identified, which is employing a hyperbolic or absolutist language. And specifically, you call out terms that I've certainly seen in social media when somebody is trying to say, you might want to choose food that isn't grown with pesticides. And then what do we get back from a troll who's monitoring the conversation on a, a social media site that this isn't sound science or this is junk science? It's hard to be the recipient of those kinds of attacks. Yeah, and I think it was Dr. Naomi Oreskes, who really is a scholar of this whole field, who wrote, sound science sounds like science, right? So a term like sound science, who can be against sound science? Because what's the opposite? It's garbage, right? But that was a term that was created by the tobacco industry, and it was created as a way to manipulate what people would think about science. And we've seen a proliferation of websites and people who dedicate themselves to what they consider to be uncovering junk science. And pretty much the entire field that I work in studying endocrine disruptors has been described by these people as junk science. Anytime someone thinks that they can take an entire field of study and throw it in the trash can, that's generally a sign of hyperbole. And that's something that really we all should avoid. But I think that hyperbole is something that we are mentally attracted to because as humans, we like to put things into categories. Mm. And it helps us, right? It helps us to understand the world to be able to put things into categories. So if we can dismiss entire fields of study as junk science, then we don't have to bother ourselves with it. And that makes us feel better. I am going to skip down to the fifth most common of the strategies, and that is the influence of government and laws where the industries that profit from products that are not good for the environment or personal health would gain inappropriate proximity to regulatory bodies that encourage policies that support a profit. We see this all the time, right? You even mentioned the revolving doors that happen with people that work in regulatory agencies and then those that go on to work within the industries that they're supposed to be regulating 
What would you like us to know about that? Yeah, I think one of the more interesting examples here really was the coal industry. And the coal industry, the reason why we picked that as an example was less about the connection between coal and climate change and more about the damage that's done to people who work as coal miners, work in the coal industry. Because this is an example of an industry that exploits their own workers. And then when their own workers develop health harm associated with their work, the industry has redefined medical terms in the legal sense to be able to prevent those people from getting compensation that they legally are entitled to. The coal industry has been able to manipulate the legal system for how black lung is diagnosed and evaluated and who is capable of making those diagnoses. And the coal industry was able to control just a handful of physicians who would review the screening tests that were done for patients, and they claimed they really never saw black lung in coal miners. And the really disgusting part of that story is that definitively diagnose black lung, it's done during an autopsy. So they would diminish the harm that had been done to employees. And then those employees would never be compensated because by the time you could definitively say that they had black lung, they were dead. Wow. Well, our time is coming to a close, but you do in your paper give a variety of strategies that individuals can use to evaluate and contextualize the information they are given. You also recognize that in this time of social media, it's become even more critical that we have critical thinking skills. Do you want to leave us with one charge or action to take? That's such a great end. I would say that we can often feel very powerless because I'm an expert in one thing, but I consume media the same way everybody else does about everything else. And it can feel very overwhelming when you're trying to make good choices and you have to rely on the information that's provided to you because as much as we're told to do our own research, in reality, very few of us are going to do what really constitutes as research. So I think that What we can do is arm ourselves to feel confident in our ability to verify the sources of information, to question whether or not conflicts of interest are involved in producing conclusions that might benefit an industry. And we also should consume media in ways that support good investigative journalism. We should pay for good investigative journalism and then look for journalists who can avoid presenting spin and industry-generated doubt and avoid journalists that seem to suggest that presenting spin is necessary to provide balance. Journalists are taught from the very earliest period of their training that if someone tells you that it's raining outside, you don't take your word for it, you open up the window and put your hand out and feel if you get wet. So we need to consume good journalism and encourage journalists not to give us spin. We don't want it. Thank you. That's a great send-off message. 
I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Laura Vandenberg. She is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We have been talking about her excellent study titled The Science of Spin, Targeted Strategies to Manufacture Doubt with Detrimental Effects on Environmental and Public Health critical information for critical thinking. And I will provide a link to this particular article. Thank you so much for your time and your work, Dr. Vandenberg. Thanks for having me.